that truly measure the impact of an email, you should be comparing two buckets of users from the same exact segment and stage. And one of those buckets would be reading your email or clicking on it and then doing something. And then another bucket would be not reading your email, not clicking on it and still doing the same thing. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Today's episode is brought to you by Writer, an all-in-one AI writing assistant for teams. Writer allows teams to create a single source of truth for brand terms that is easy to build, edit, and share. It integrates seamlessly with Chrome, Google Docs, Word, Outlook, and now offers a plugin that brings automated brand consistency directly to Figma. Go to writer.com, yes, that's W-R-I-T-E-R.com, and see what Writer can do for your team. Hello and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought you by the UX Writing Hub, which is an online education platform for UX writers, content designers. We have the UX Writing Academy. Soon we're going to have even more products that will help you to level up your skills as writers in tech. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Jane Portman. Jane is the co-founder and CEO of UserList and also runs UI Breakfast podcast, which is a podcast that I've been following since I started, which is a long time ago. I think like seven years, maybe something like that. Going on eight, I think. Eight years, eight years. I remember it was there. I remember looking for UX slash UI related podcasts and UI Breakfast was always there for me. And podcast was a very great tool for me when I was just getting started. And that's why I'm running this podcast today. And today, a special day because Jane is in the guest seat and not in the host seat. And I'm very excited to have her. Hey, Jane, how are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Yuval. It's indeed a great pleasure to be in the guest seat for a change. <laughs> is this something common? Have you ever been a guest in a podcast before? Definitely, yes. But the ratio is definitely towards being a host. But yeah, I enjoy definitely. being a guest here. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm very happy to have you. I was on your podcast once before and soon to be maybe twice. Uh, we have another episode coming up. So that's fun. First thing first. So I know that you work at UserList. So it's a, some kind of an email marketing platform. So what is it exactly? Yes, I work at UserList, on UserList, for UserList and like from UserList, <laughs> from behind. I've been, I've been a co-founder alongside my co-founder, Benedict, working on this for four years, going in five actually. And it's an email automation platform for SaaS companies that focuses on customer lifecycle email, and it really well understands customer data. So unlike other platforms out there, we target exclusively SaaS companies, and we understand behavior-based email and a lot of other things that in other platforms are a chore, and we try to make them simple and nice. Nice. I really love that segment that you're working towards SaaS. It's such a challenging and complicated thing to use this like huge behemoth tools for very specific use cases. I'm talking about like tools, like I use ActiveCampaign, for example. I don't want to say anything bad about your competition, but it's such a mess. It's so difficult for us to, to use it for specific use cases. And it's cool that you have this segment. Yes, thank you. And, you know, e-commerce as a segment is booming. So it's very hard for email platforms to leave them out. 
Therefore, they're having a hard time focusing on something specific. So tell me, what are the differences between SaaS emails automations than other type of, you know, uh, okay, we have audience that maybe just don't know a lot about this type of tools. So for example, email automation means that you build different scenarios or different segments and based on them, you shoot emails. Okay. So my question for you, Jane, would be what's unique about SaaS email automations? By nature, it's not 100% unique. You can probably make any other tool work for you with some hacks and workarounds and everything like that. But customer email, customer lifecycle email for SaaS specifically works based on user behavior. So our customers track their end user behavior in form of events and properties, send that data to user list, and then we process the data, and then you can build behavior-based email on top of that. A typical email marketing platform would have a model based on a subscriber. So anybody with an email address is already a subscriber. And then, yes, sure, you can enrich those profiles with some behavior data, with some tags, which subject of its own, it can be a huge mess, but they're not built to include a full range of behavior. The only platform I would say really competes on that front is uh, Customer.io, that is among the popular ones. But our unique differentiator is that we allow to combine individual users into company accounts and then market to them and then send uh, email to the entire company when something happens on the company level. And that allows for such a clean data model. We basically replicate the data model that the SaaS company has, including complex things like many-to-many relationships between companies and users and things like that. That is our unique selling proposition. <laughs> Amazing. And my question for you would be, we have many writers here in the audience that need to create this type of emails. So what will be common use cases that you're familiar with that you can kind of think about for this type of emails? Which kind of scenarios? The biggest uh, hot word there is user onboarding, user onboarding emails, uh, activation emails, mm-hmm. upgrade emails, anything that's happening after the user signs up for a trial and then follows their journey in the SaaS. Can you think about like best practices for people that would like to uh, improve the type of, for example, onboarding emails? So based on your experience, what would be like a good recipe for a successful uh, onboarding email? What's a good recipe for successful button copy, Yuval? Like, seriously, <laughs> like, wh- what is that button? Like, where is it? It's a very generic question. But the good answer to that would be to think um, holistically about not just the copy, but when it's sent, who is receiving it, and what is the specific moment. And then you will realize that the actual words are important, but really half the deal. And another half is how you orchestrate them throughout the journey. If that's a message that's redundant and that is like really not matching the customer journey when saying that you need to do something and you've already done it or something bad like that, it can really hurt your brand. And vice versa, if it's timely, it can really improve the the brand within the same exact words. So it's more about when than just about what. And uh, what we see, the common problem being is that People don't think about segmentation. They don't really think too hard about the journey. 
and uh, they really don't think about implementation, while having all of that in mind would be really helpful. However, we are sort of loyal to our audience and we understand that no nobody's a professional email automator, neither product managers, nor writers, nor founders, they're not professional email automation specialists. So it's our mission of sorts to, to help them parse that in their head. But yeah, it's, it's the same way we were chatting about this before the recording. Google Analytics, I imagine, produces the feeling of overwhelm and frustration for like half of the audience out there, even not more. Uh, but in fact, it's a very useful tool. Well, UserList is much cleaner inside, but everybody still feels maybe not qualified enough. And we want to break that stereotype. <laughs> That's a very good answer to a very generic uh, question. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for that. And like, I remember when I just started out with automations and I, I just like paid for Zapier or something like that. And for like two years, I was trying to define what type of automation I need. Like I knew I needed an automation, but it was very difficult for me to design the scenario, to design the context. And it took me two years. And as you said, it was extremely overwhelming. So for the writers in the crowd that are amazing writers, but having a lot of challenges right now, and they are feeling a bit overwhelmed with creating different scenarios and automations and decide like what will trigger these automations. So where should they start? What will be the first step? I would suggest for them to think about user journey and to break it down into a sequence of stages that will be represented by segments that people go through. We have a lot of writing about it, but I can suggest uh, linking to our user onboarding guide, which has a lot of content on the topic, and it also includes some charts so that we can you know, show, not tell. Basically, almost every SaaS out there falls under one of the models, either free trial or freemium, and a little portion of people who charge right away, but that's a smaller part of founders. And uh, for example, in a free trial SaaS model, it would be trials, expiring trials, paying customers, advanced paying customers, maybe potential churning customers and, and canceled accounts. Let's say those, you need to work with your developer to set up those segments based on data. You can, you can channel you know, information from Stripe or some other payment status information that will help you understand where the people are. You can also add a couple success metrics to the mix so that you sort of feature flags or you know key usage. For example, if we imagine we have an example app, it's called Sparkle. So it's a photo editing app. We use it for demos and examples. And this photo editing app could be, it could have a number of albums and a number of photos in the user's account. That would be a good example of a very classic, very simple success metric. So if uh, the person has zero photos, then, well, you should send them advice about uh, like how to take your pictures and upload them. If they have zero albums, you will be sending them advice on how to organize your photos into albums things like that. Well, I'm jumping ahead of the train a little bit. So you would think about these segments that the audience goes through, the life cycle stages. And then typically, each segment has um, their own conversion goal. So for trials, your goal is to activate them so that they start receiving value from your tool. For expiring trials, your goal is to make them submit their card. That would be a dedicated campaign. For paying customers, your goal is to make them 
successful, maybe get them onboarded with some advanced features. Now you're not have to, you don't have to convert them anymore. They're paying already, but you, you can still do a lot of things to make them power users. For mature or advanced customers, you can tap into their loyalty and ask for referrals, ask for reviews, suggest the affiliate programs, invite them for customer success call with yourself automatically. And this is literally work of a SaaS customer success manager, like a separate person could be tracking people and doing that, but you can absolutely put that on autopilot in like a few clicks. So just imagine this lifecycle segmentation, try to figure out the way to set it up technically, and then everything should really fall in place from there. Because when the people join certain segment, you will be sending them a dedicated campaign dedicated to that conversion goal that we discussed. And that is basically the scheme. Your segments, campaigns, conversion goals, they all go hand in hand. And that after thing in mind, or probably on paper, some charting tool, then it will really be much more easier to, to write. And so writing will be a smaller part and it will be much more enjoyable if you understand the bigger picture. Amazing. I always say that writing is only... The five five percent of the work and ninety five percent of the work is to understand the context basically. So do you know that joke about nine dollars and, and one dollar? Mm, which joke? A car uh, standing broken in the middle of the road and then the guy comes up and says, I can fix your car, give me ten dollars. They do, he takes a hammer and slams one time and it works. And they're like, Why are you taking ten dollars? You just hit it with a hammer once. And he's like, well, $1 for hitting and $9 for knowing where to hit. <laughs> exactly. So it's a bit like that. I, I, I know that. I know that. I know the same version of it, only with the doctor. That you Probably. Yeah, that's a good example. Like, I like the most from what I'm hearing right now is how I always see it with the founders that are also designers and how, like obsessive they are with in a good way with customer journeys and and the user basically and, and the context of the user and how to improve the user experience and identify every point of the touch point of the user journey and know exactly how to design for that journey and i think it's it's very impressive it's pretty cool so now that we know like what's the context and how exactly we're going to write those emails I would really love to hear for specific examples that you can think of based on your experience, based on your users or your clients, where like identify a specific segment or a specific section in the user journey, manage to move the needle for an organization in a significant way. Can you think about maybe one example? I love your question. If I were a host, I would be asking the same. But it's interesting that we focus our efforts on bringing everybody to the bare minimum, to the 20% effort that solve 80% of the need. And unfortunately, we don't have this data. However, we have a very nice webinar recording workshop that we had with Claudio Morario of Inner Trends. And Inner Trends is a product analytics platform. They serve the same audience as we do, just uh, they do analytics and we do email. He mentioned the way that to truly measure the impact of an email, you should be comparing two buckets of users from the same exact segment and stage. And one of those buckets would be reading your email or clicking on it and then doing something. And then another bucket would be not reading your email, not clicking on it and still doing the same thing. So that's the only way to truly measure like 
whether that moves the needle or not. And now, can you imagine, like, would anybody bother with doing that? Like, with really measuring it for every for every email or something like that? I would imagine that not. Unfortunately, we operate in the field of best practices rather than, you know, revolutionary case studies. We know for sure that sending something is better than sending nothing and sending relevant stuff is surely better than sending like a um, time-based non-behavior non-behavior based sequence so that's what we can recommend and our efforts are focused on helping people get inspired and do that 20 percent that covers 80 percent of the need i definitely see where you're coming from there is some stuff that is truly difficult to measure for example like we just had very similar project we had email writing project for this really big data company where they're sending like different alerts to their users if something bad is happening and one thing led to another and we found ourselves writing the onboarding uh, emails and it was quite of a challenge to understand like what's going to make those onboarding emails successful at the end of the day like the when are we going to see the churn from it? Is it going to be like next year? Is it going to be like half an year from now? It was very difficult even to define those KPIs. Not that I was in charge of creating those KPIs, but for me as a writer, leading a team of writers, it was very challenging. So I definitely see where you're coming from with what you said right now. I think it helps to take a more humble approach and really understand what role email plays in life of your user. And let's admit, it's not like 90% of the impact that you can make with that email. It's just a channel that you can use to send relevant messages. And it's highly unlikely that it will like radically change their trajectory. Sure, you can nudge. Sure, you can remind that you exist. Sure, you can provide helpful stuff. But really, it mostly depends on the autonomous journey of the user it definitely depends on the external circumstances and you shouldn't be playing God and trying to really pretend that you impact that. However, as product people, we are doing our best to make that process smooth and nudge and encourage and do other things. But really, one user is so much different from the another, from another in their motivation, in their circumstances and everything. I don't think we should go and trouble ourselves with, <laughs> and, and, you know, penalize ourselves for um, poor performance or anything because we should be just doing our best. That's all we can do. Right. In your company user list, so what, um, do you have any process in place for creating the microcopy for the platform or the UX writing and the product writing, basically? Unfortunately, we don't have any uh, good processes in place. And when I was interviewing you for, for your breakfast a few weeks ago, I was like, we absolutely should. You know, <laughs> being four years into the journey, we're actually like graduating from the early stage into the scaling stage at the moment or so it feels we're building the team, we're transforming some of the processes that did work for for three-person team but don't work for a larger team and like changing up the infrastructure. And that's that's good timing for the good copywriting process as well. Our product department still primarily relatively small compared to the engineering department. Like the engineering effort is so larger that it doesn't yet make sense to have those deliverables in place just yet, but I am all ears and waiting for that moment when it's good time. <laughs> sort of. Cool. If you want me, I can send you a link to sign up to our UX Running Accelerator where you can get some help from our academy students. Uh, yeah, can thank you. Too if you want. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Are you in charge of the UX design of the product? Or I know that you're the CEO, so I guess you don't have the time to 
to design, but uh, is it part of your responsibility as well? Yes, definitely. And as I mentioned, design and copywriting versus engineering, it's like 10% versus 90% of, of effort. So I do design, but I don't do this too often because there is engineering in place that happens. I do mostly a bit of design and a lot of marketing. I basically represent the marketing department. <laughs> And as a CEO, I'm growing the team and doing other things. But yeah, if, if we talk about departments, I'm mostly marketing and it's pretty sad. So I'm doing my best to dedicate certain hours in a week because going back to my original craft, it's really healing to a certain sense. It's something that I feel complete control of as opposed to marketing outcomes and marketing efforts. Yeah, I definitely can see where you're coming from. It always feels like home to go back into the design tool, design some screens. Like I was a UX designer way back when I just started listening to your podcast seven, eight years ago, but I still find myself uh, design screens for the UX Wedding Hub. I find that like, it's not only that I like it because I understand this organization so well because I'm leading it. So I find that the pages that I create, it's very, it just feels uh, natural and easy and I don't need to think too much. It's just like, I know exactly what needs to be there. So I'm just creating it. That's why it's challenging to me also to hire a designer, which is something that I'm trying to do, by the way. Well, maybe there is an ideal candidate listening to you right now. Who knows? Yeah. You should be, you know, you have access to the big talent pool of UX folks. You shouldn't be struggling with that. I'd like to mention that modern design tools, man, they're amazing. Auto layouts and Figma, that is like, really cutting design time in half for me at least compared to what I used to do. And uh, previously I would, you know, be adjusting the buttons, the spacing and everything. And now it's just like a matter of a couple of clicks to make a consistent layout. I'm, I find it amazing. Uh, really good progress in the industry. Wow, that's amazing. I remember like passing master sketch files through Google Drive and, you know, just uploading it without even a having like a product on the cloud that we could collaborate on. So even the fact that we have like a collaborative design tool, I don't take it for granted. It's something that is relatively new. Did you get to design websites in uh, Photoshop or are you not that old? Uh, yes, 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 yes. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm that old. Uh, Things have right? <laughs> like slicing thing, exporting layers to, yeah, yeah, exporting layers as PNG files and stuff like that. Every page is like a different file that was like, it wasn't that great of a time. So to the listeners that listening, what exactly is auto layout Figma? How do you use it? It's a feature that helps you combine objects into a cohesive layout. Let's say you have three items and you use press auto layout and that equally has them as a group of 30 pixels apart or something like that. And basically you can drag them around and everything resizes to fit content and it's just pure magic. You should just go and Google really. I'm making, I'm doing a poor job describing it. But yeah, auto layout just resizes everything to fit the content and everything anchors to where you want it to anchor and resizes the way you want to resize. It's just really enjoyable and you know half of my career was probably resizing buttons to fit the text now what i'm gonna do <laughs> <laughs> maybe you just need to focus on marketing now yeah, you can focus yeah. On marketing. i'm using miro right now but fig jam which is relatively new so mm-hmm. i just used fig jam for the first time like one week ago to organize i don't know like social media posts and stuff with the new person that we're working with and now not only that it's like a great design tool for product teams and developers and writers and designers, now like sketching ideas like we're doing in Mill, that's also happening in Figma. 
because it, in Figma and FigGem integrates really well with each other. So Figma is doing an amazing work. I feel like it's like kind of eating the world and every design team is using it right now, which wasn't the case like two years ago. Great job, definitely. Definitely. All right. Jane, we are getting to the end of the episode. I wanted to ask you a question, which is, we ask this question every uh, guest, but if we had to name this episode, how do you think we should name it? That's a tough question. Yeah. Understanding life cycle email for SaaS. That would be the keywords. Right. I don't know. You want to enreach those keywords with anything, but our SEO consultant said, you know, your Google knows that is useless website better than you do. Like they, they know it's a UX podcast by now. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I like that. I like that. Writing life cycles, emails for SAS. I think that's uh, with Jane Portman, founder of Userlist. Actually, I forgot to mention one important thing that once again, writing is just the tip of the iceberg first in the regard that automation is the bottom of the iceberg. And another bottom of the second iceberg is the content library and the resource library that you're building as a SaaS that you can use to write those emails. You can link to different things. You can suggest different call formats. You can link to videos, tutorials, uh, docs, guides whatever. Writing that will take time. And writing emails about them, it's not that uh, challenging again. And it's again a tip of the iceberg. What kind of uh, best practices do you know about creating these libraries? Like we have different names for those. Like we have content style guides, content design systems, but basically content libraries. Do you have any um, like specific structure that you're familiar with that works well for different SaaS companies or is it like every company have their own? Oh yeah. Every SaaS company should have a blog, right. a knowledge base. They should have a savvy cal or Calendly set up with different link types and they should have a video channel with some instructional videos. Just those simple four things will take you five years to build right and uh, that is the best practice. Welcome to the SaaS world. <laughs> Amazing tip. Yes, definitely. I agree. And you said something that you didn't say anything about writing specifically SaaS emails. I didn't want to go there because I understood that there is like very specific use cases for very, you know, very every different company probably have their own kind of rules. But is there some kind of specific way to approach writing this type of emails? I would say definitely follow your general language style. And of course, you should know better about that. Obviously, it should be consistent with the product vocabulary, which is another thing, as you far well know, successful and clear product vocabulary is key to success. And you definitely should be reinforcing that and following that in the emails. All right. Cool. Typical best practices for writing any email on the planet is try to keep it short rather than long, even though like there are questions there. Try to keep it one thing per email, either one idea like or one point or one call to action per email. And there is always an argument whether you should be linking somewhere else or including everything in the email as a long form thing. And it's an open discussion, but if you send people elsewhere, you can leverage rich formats such as video, illustrations, and everything. And if you keep them inside, you get the benefit of exposing your best uh, writing right there, and they have better chances of reading it immediately as they receive the email. So it's, it's your decision what strategy to follow. But uh, linking somewhere also gives you a benefit of measuring 
where they click. So it has a subtle, like, a subtle, I have a subtle preference there because you can measure when uh, people go somewhere. That's cool. Yeah, we try to keep in our newsletter, for example, a nice mix of both, like linking to our own content and also linking to other people's content. And it helps us to build trust in a way because people know that we always try to link to the best content uh, related to this specific topic and like UX writing. But we also always try to push our own content in the emails just to get, you know, exposure. It's good for marketing and so on. All right, Jen, thank you so much. It was amazing to have you. Um, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Yuval. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Writers in Tech, a podcast that brought you by the UX Writing Hub. I want to recommend you to check our free UX Writing course in our website. Go to uxwritinghub.com. If you're curious about UX Writing and you want to check out what it's all about, go to the website, check the free course. We have also a weekly newsletter free to join as well. And I also want to encourage you to go and join uh, userlist.com if you're looking for any solution for a company related to email and SaaS emails and you want to explore you know, different contextual segments for your users and then write for those segments, go to your product manager, send them this link and ask them what do they think about migrating their email efforts into user list. That's about it. And I'll see you next time. Bye.